Well, uh, good morning. Uh, Randy, you may, you may wish after this sermon that you had my father-in-law up here to give this talk. Um, n- normally, I, I fill in for Randy in the summers when he's away uh, doing other things. So uh, it's a bit strange to be introduced as a guest speaker. Um, and I, I guess the pressure's really on now. Well, Joe was a very bright and intelligent young man. He was also a self-professed Satanist. He could often be found reading books at a coffee shop where members of a church entitled the Awakening Church often hung out. In his book entitled Organic Church, Neil Cole recalled one particular encounter between Joe the Satanist and a guest speaker at their church, who was a gifted uh, apologist, a gifted defender of the faith. And so, within a matter of a few minutes, this pastor approaches Joe the Satanist, and they start getting into a conversation. And the pastor launches into this rather famous argument by C.S. Lewis, entitled typically, Lord, Liar, Lunatic. And it concerns whether or not the picture of Jesus in the Gospels is accurate. It basically goes along the lines of uh, the disciples would not have willingly died for a lunatic or a liar, but they would die for the Lord. So the pastor, he starts articulating this argument, and much to his surprise, Joe, the Satanist, finishes it for him and says, I'd love C.S. Lewis. I've read all his books. Then he turned away, and engage someone else in conversation. But a little bit later, Joe would hardly be prepared for what Michelle had to say. But we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Does, does God exist? Seems like kind of a strange question to be asking in church, of all places, on a Sunday morning. I mean, don't we already know the answer? It's kind of like asking uh, whether your auto mechanic, whether you should get your car changed, the oil changed every 50,000 miles or so. Um, or asking a college professor whether she thinks it's good that you, know, you should get an education. Um, or it's like asking your wife whether or not you should celebrate a wedding anniversary. But it's still a question worth asking. Does God exist? And we'd be tempted to say, of course. I think that's the right answer, so we can breathe easily. God does exist, but it's probably not the God that we believe in, much less the God whose existence the atheists commonly deny. And so what I want to do this morning is address three common areas uh, concerning this whole notion of defending God's existence. Uh, It's debates, doubt, and dialogue. Debates, doubt, and dialogue. And I hope there's some kind of logical progression here. Uh, As we go, maybe that will become more clear. So some of you may already be disappointed, I admit, because I have no intention of laying out any kind of specific devastating arguments against the atheist positions. Later on, I will, however, suggest a few questions that are useful to engage atheists in some kind of dialogue that deepens understanding and gets the atheists maybe to reconsider things. In fact, one of the main reasons why we won't be talking about these arguments 
has to do with the tenor of a lot of these Christian atheist debates. In fact, when I look at these debates, and I've seen plenty of them on video, I've been to a few at different churches, it almost comes across to me as kind of a necessary evil. Because more often than not, they seem to lead to more defensiveness or dogmatism or further division. Case in point would be Brother Todd. Unfortunately, I no longer have the video that he had uploaded on YouTube. He since took it down. But Brother Brother Todd decided to launch a diatribe against a new movement that was covered by ABC's Nightline a few years ago. You maybe have heard of it, uh, called the Blasphemy Challenge. The Blasphemy Challenge, where young people, agnostics, skeptics, academics, and others were encouraged to deny the existence of the Holy Spirit or to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, committing that unpardonable sin, and then recording that response and uploading it on the internet. There's still plenty of them out there. So Brother Todd, bless his heart, uh, gets the camera and gets his big black Bible and he's got a black suit, black tie, white shirt, and he decides to launch a Praise the Lord Challenge. And at the end of his little 30-second video, he said, if you find a mistake in the Bible, I will leave the faith and then yelled, praise the Lord, and switched off the camera. Now, I think his heart was in the right place, but was that the best response? I think this divisive nature only takes on a slightly more civilized tone when it happens in churches and in public debates. Now, I don't think debates are all bad. In fact, sometimes these debates are necessary if for nothing else, to show that Christianity can't be disproven. Yet it seems that these events tend towards further divisiveness or fracturing along intellectual, social, and spiritual lines. I think John Stackhouse has said it quite eloquently. He says, in power events such as these debates, there must be a victor and a vanquished. The dangers in such a simple dichotomy are several, however, Each side is sorely tempted to cheer without reflection any point made by its champion and to denigrate immediately any idea advanced by the opponent. If you've ever been to one of these, uh, it's very common for Christians to leave thinking that we demolished the arguments of that atheist. How how could they even stand up in front of us and uh, perpetrate that rubbish? And if you've ever been around atheists, they tend to say, the same thing. Those Christians are idiots. Not only are they not nice, but they still just don't get it. Case in point would be Hemant Mehta, who authored a book entitled, I Sold My Soul on eBay. I had an interesting discussion with him at another church this summer, just about this topic. Now, Maida is a U of I Chicago graduate who left the Jainism faith at age 14 and decided that he wanted to become an atheist. But his conscience was getting to him as a college student, and he decided that he was actually becoming too comfortable in his atheism. So he decided to put it to the test, especially, especially since most of his friends used to be Christians. So what he, what he did is he uploaded a video on eBay, and he promised, or not a video, but an advert on eBay, promising to visit one local church 
for every $10 that was donated to a particular charity on eBay. And within a few days, this thing went viral, and he had way more invitations than he could possibly accommodate. So he did a nationwide tour, visiting places like Saddleback, Willow Creek, Moody Bible Institute's church, churches on the East Coast. And he led to this writing of this book. But he also notes that when, when this was kind of gaining steam, he was invited by some Christians to participate in a Christian radio program where he says that he was ambushed for 45 minutes where the Christians began to hammer away at all of his beliefs, calling his belief in the Big Bang the great big cosmic duh because we know God created the universe. Maida then kind of asked rhetorically whether Christians needed to insult others to make their point. And then he said, I was not expecting the host to be a Christian, Howard Stern. Even after I got off the line, the co-host continued to emphasize what a fool I was for following atheism. I think in reality, many atheists have good reasons for believing that God doesn't exist, and Christians is probably one of the biggest. (laughs) And we need to ask ourselves the question, how far do we go in defending the truth of Christianity, the fact that God really exists? And here, I just want to make some hopefully brief related points about this whole notion of debate versus dialogue. Just, just some, some ground rules or some background fundamentals that I think are important to stress. And the first one is this. God doesn't need defending. God really doesn't need defending. In fact, we would do well to be reminded, especially throughout the Old Testament, that God is far more interested in us defending the cause of the weak and the marginalized and the poor and the hungry than he is about us defending his existence. But it's also a mistake to think that those two aren't somehow related. Second point, and this one may strike you as kind of strange, but I think it's true. We can't prove God's existence. Another way of saying this is that if we could prove God's existence absolutely, then we would no longer need faith. God has woven the need for faith into the very fabric of our universe. And if God's existence could be captured in an argument, then it seems that we'd be more apt to put our trust in that argument than we would God. And that God would not be very big. I like the way Paul Tillich once expressed it when he said faith is necessary in order to keep reason from absolutizing itself. Here's here's where things may get a little bit opaque. I debated a long time about including this quote, but I've decided just for good measure to throw it in there anyway. It's from the Danish Christian philosopher Zoran Kierkegaard. I I realize that's a mouthful already, Uh, but he was one of the first to really oppose this idea of having to defend Christianity. To, to defend Christianity, he said, is to diminish it. So uh, here we go. Just hang on, and hopefully things will get clearer after this quote. He says, But Christianity makes an enormous giant stride into the absurd. That is where Christianity begins. 
and offense begins. Now we see how extraordinarily stupid it is to defend Christianity. How little knowledge of human nature it manifests, making Christianity out to be some poor, miserable thing that in the end has to be rescued by a champion. Therefore, it is certain and true that the first one to come up with the idea of defending Christianity in Christendom is de facto a Judas number two. Strong words. He too betrays with a kiss, except that his treason is the treason of stupidity. To defend something is always to disparage it. And as for Christianity, well, he who defends it has never believed it. Now, that is an extreme way of putting things, and I I don't share in that extremity. But I think, I think his point is something along the lines of this, that if we think Christianity depends on our arguments, then we probably don't have Christianity anymore. If we think that Christianity depends on our arguments, we, we displace Christ and we make Christ rest on philosophy or arguments, and then we don't have the Christian faith anymore. This was my lame PowerPoint attempt at trying to do some graphics and... Um, so in my spirit, I, I, I get what Kierkegaard is saying, but it doesn't mean we throw rationality out the window. Another point is that we need to learn to offer a defense, but without being so d- defensive. One of the things observed by Meta, the author of I Sold My Soul on eBay, was how churches and Christians, uh, churches and Christians in general tend to adopt a hostile stance or a combative stance, especially towards atheism and atheists in general. He says, why does Christianity perceive so many things as a threat? In his book, he says, evolution is a threat, gay marriage is a threat, a swear word uttered accidentally is a threat, even Democrats are a threat. Sadly, this has been, I think, confirmed more recently in a book by David Kinnaman entitled Unchristian, where an anonymous respondent said this. Most people I meet assume that Christian means very conservative, entrenched in their thinking, anti-gay, anti-choice, angry, violent, illogical empire builders. They want to convert everyone, and they generally can't live peacefully with anyone who doesn't believe what they believe. Now, I don't think that's entirely fair, but that is a common perception. Frankly, we Christians can sometimes be a little difficult to get along with. And Mehat says to us, I am not your enemy. One final, last kind of basic point, and this one will lead us into discussing doubt, is that we Christians are often too sure of ourselves, and sometimes it smacks of insincerity or inauthenticity. And we live in a culture that has very little tolerance for that kind of stance, perceived or otherwise. Meta himself founded a religious or anti-religious group on the campus of the University of Illinois Chicago with the name SWORD. It's an acronym for Students Without Religious Dogma. 
The subtext there is students without Christianity. Which kind of begs the question, is there any room for doubt? And I think quite honestly, we need to ask that question of ourselves before we are willing to engage someone else who is doubting. I think we need to come face to face with our own doubts, which is, is the, second, the second point here. Why, why we all tend to be practical atheists. We live in an age of doubt. If you're in academia, it is fashionable to doubt. If, if, you, if you show too much confidence in something, then it surely shows that you don't know what you're talking about or you haven't done your homework or even worse, you're just naive. We have a tendency, however, uh, to go to two extremes concerning doubt. Either we become comfortable in doubt or we just want to eliminate it altogether as completely hostile to the Christian faith. The first one, a banishing doubt, eliminating doubt. This view would just as soon get rid of doubt altogether. Some Christians have a tendency to see the faith as the absence of all doubt or questioning. God said it, I believe it, that settles it, full stop. The problem is, is that this leads to a, a very anti-Christian stance towards the world, and it often leads to a very brittle faith. Bart Ehrman, some of you perhaps have heard that name. Unfortunately, his books are all over the religion section at Barnes & Noble and Borders. Uh, is an outspoken New Testament scholar who no longer believes in the Bible or Jesus or God teaches at Duke University. What is interesting, however, is that at one point in his life, he was as committed as a Christian could be. He says, I grew up and went to, uh, went to church, became a follower of Christ, went to Bible college, was given everything I needed, or so I thought, all the answers. But then he says, I went to graduate school and I wrote one paper on the book of Mark dealing with one particular issue and the professor wrote one little question in the margin, which basically suggested, what if Mark was wrong? And it led him to think, maybe, maybe Mark was wrong. And with, with that one statement and, a, and a, you know, an avalanche of thoughts, his faith literally evaporated. And he ended up walking away from the Christian faith over one question. I suspect, I suspect that doubt was something that wasn't allowed. Now, the other danger is becoming way too comfortable with doubt. I call this habitual doubt. Uh, in, embracing doubt as a permanent stance towards the world and everything, everyone, becoming kind of a doubting Thomas. And this kind of doubt can be very, very paralyzing. It can also be comforting. It can also work to your advantage because you don't have to commit you can, you can just push those questions further away until more evidence comes in, so to speak. I think this is the kind of destructive doubt that James is talking about in James chapter 1. Uh, he calls it being double-minded, being tossed back and forth on the waves, floating on a sea of uncertainty. Now, neither of those options are very helpful 
In fact, faith itself doesn't really make much sense until we relate it to doubt. One very witty philosopher once noted that a doubt that doubted everything would no longer be doubt. Or in other words, the very expression of doubt must arise from something that we're certain of or sure of. Now, aside from those kind of more abstract philosophical assertions, it is worth noting that Jesus himself makes room for doubt. And even more profoundly, gave expression to that doubt on the cross. In arguably the most haunting words ever spoken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think that was just a quote of Psalm 22. One interesting thing I stumbled across this summer uh, in reading through the book of Matthew was this little phrase right before what is known as the Great Commission. You know, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He's appeared to disciples and others, and now he's ready to ascend into heaven, and he gives this charge to go make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, etc. The Great Commission. But right before that phrase, Matthew notes that as the disciples gathered on the hill, some still doubted. Some doubted. That hardly sounds like a really, you know, rah-rah ringing endorsement to start the church. I mean, these are, these are his disciples. I mean, we're okay with Judas. He denied Christ, fine. But the others, others were still struggling with it. I'm, I'm, not so sure, I'm not so sure what this means. Calvin, perhaps, put it better when he said that our faith is never perfect. It's because of sin. Because our faith is never perfect, we are partly un believers. And I think the pattern of our lives often reflects this kind of understanding of God. And admittedly, it can be somewhat disturbing. So enough about doubt. What can we say then about faith? And I think the closest that we get to anything that approaches a definition would be in Hebrews chapter 11, the first verse. I'm deliberately quoting from the King James. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In fairness here, that one Greek word which is rendered substance in other versions is usually rendered as assurance or something more subjective in nature. But many commentators actually prefer the substance reading given the fact that this, uh, if we take a more subjective reading, we might be misled into thinking that faith is ultimately up to us and that it's something that we have to generate that we can then use as a tool to manipulate God, a kind of name it and claim it faith. If you just believe enough and give it to God, then God is somehow obligated to act on your belief as a kind of reward. And I think the substance interpretation guards against that kind of name-it-and-claim-it version of faith. And if you continue to read on 
in Hebrews chapter 11, you find all of these great examples about people who followed God yet never received what they were promised. They lived according to an unseen and unrealized reality and they never got what God had promised. So regardless of how that particular word should be rendered, it is very, very clear that the faith that worked on these people resulted in lives that were lived according to this perception of unperceptible realities. An unseen reality and future hope lives worthy in praise of emulation, living lives that were worthy of praise and emulation. See, skepticism says seeing is believing, or measuring is believing, or proving is believing. Seeing is believing. Faith, however, according to Hebrews 11, says that believing is seeing. One writer put it like this, faith, faith is learning to be patient with God. Learning to be patient with God. And recognizing that we don't see everything clearly, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians. We see through a glass darkly. Sometimes we may not see at all, but we still believe there is a reality out there that engages us and God sustains us. But make no mistake, if we live our lives according to unseen realities, then there is an inextricable dimension of doubt. It is still there and it doesn't go away. But this kind of doubt doesn't so much doubt that God exists. This kind of doubt is more the kind of doubt that questions God's goodness and God's ability to act in our lives or in our unique circumstances. In short, this kind of doubt encourages us to be practical atheists. Craig Gay has written a book about how we are tempted to live life as if God doesn't exist. He says that we live by the assumption that even if God exists, he is largely irrelevant to the real business of life. Indeed, we are tempted to live as if God did not exist, or at least as if his existence did not practically matter. He asserts that the pressures of daily life, the consumer-oriented culture we live in, all the technologies that we have encourage us to go about our daily lives without even really thinking about God. Things like faith and prayer are eclipsed by this kind of practical efficiency, by expertise, by technique, or Facebook. So could the same charges be leveled against us? Could it be described of us that we often order our lives to minimize our dependence on God? Could it be said of us that we're not sure what to do with our doubts about God's goodness and involvement in our lives? This kind of practical atheism has become so attractive, Gay says, that we've now kind of embraced it in our churches. That is, we we tend to order our lives around prosperity, consumption, technology, and politics, and church is just reduced to something we do on Sunday. And the kind of lives that we lead, the sad reality is that the kind of lives we lead 
often speaks more profoundly of God than our words do. Put more harshly, some of us would be hard-pressed to describe in any detail the difference that Christ makes in our everyday life. I mean, it's just kind of a default condition, isn't it? We know. Um, We know how to order our lives so that God doesn't have to absolutely come through or we're in deep trouble. God God is our backup plan. God is plan B. Or as that bumper sticker often says, you know, God's my co-pilot. Or, or God's got my back. Horrible theology in a bumper sticker. We're not sure what to do about our doubts about God's goodness. And the danger, and James perceives this very well, is that we can, lead, we can live in two minds. We can be uncertain. We, we won't accomplish much for the kingdom. Doubt, fear, anxiety keep us from living the kind of lives that are compelling and that attest to the goodness of God. And when these kind of doubts over time deteriorate into skepticism, inevitably any arguments that we use to convince others will start to ring hollow. So while we may speak of the reality of God's goodness with our mouths, our lives are often telling a different story and often betrays a God who doesn't exist. So, what kind of life does your God, or rather, what kind of God does your life reveal? What kind of life, what kind, I'm guessing it twice, what kind of God does your life reveal? If, if your life were a book, and someone could read it, would God be found in the pages? If your life were a song or a melody, what, what, kind, of, what kind of tune would it be? Something worth thinking about. Do you have any doubts? Maybe you've never been given the freedom to express these to God. And that's why these big boards up here with question marks are here. Maybe you're not even sure you have any doubts. But what we want to do is give you an opportunity to express some of those before God. And to be honest, telling God your doubts, your fears, or your anxieties that may not even have a nameable object. In, in your bulletins, we have post-it notes for you to write these down. And this is an invitation for you, if you're comfortable, to come up here and place them before God. This is your opportunity to echo what the psalmists did in the book of Psalms. Pouring out your heart to God. Inevitably, there are some of you here who right now feel like Psalm 88, where maybe darkness is your only companion. Rest assured, God is bigger than those doubts, and if there's going to be any way to flourish in the Christian faith, those doubts need to be named. Those doubts need to be expressed to God. 
Some of you would rather just sit quietly and do business with God, and that, that is fine too. We are not keeping records of these things. But it might also help to know that others are probably in the same boat that you're in, and you may not even be aware of it. If, if, we, can't, if we can't express our doubts about God's goodness in church as a family, I'm, I'm not sure where else we can. So before we finish this sermon off and talk about dialogue, take a few minutes and do some business with God and be willing to express some of your fears or doubts to God. When we learn to face our doubts and some of those questions that may very well never be answered on this side of eternity, we, we, we are never more in a position to be used by God to engage those who are really skeptical of God's existence and just want to outright deny it. This is why I prefer dialogue over debate. It seems in my personal experience that arguments to defend the Christian faith have largely been ineffective in reaching people for Christ. I I teach apologetics as a professor. I teach it a particular way, but I'm also very honest that while we study and learn arguments, you need to be careful in employing them and not to expect people overnight to think that this this is the missing link. It's a lot harder to become a friend of a skeptic or an atheist. But I think that's the real true path to engaging the world and being creative participants of God's transforming this world. Maida himself asks, how can you demonstrate the advantages of the Christian faith if you refuse to associate with people like me? Then he goes on to say, here's my advice to Christians who want to influence people like me. Be open to reaching out to people who disagree with you instead of forcing us to adopt your beliefs in order to win your approval. Why not go ahead and approve of me simply because I'm a fellow human? Shouldn't that be enough to earn your respect? I mean, that's actually really good theology, and it sometimes tops what Christians write about treating each other with respect. But that doesn't mean this this blanket approval of everything that someone may assert. You can love and actually disagree, but a better way is asking the right questions. I do want to also confess that the Christian worldview doesn't offer perfectly satisfying answers to life's most difficult questions. In fact, the Christian worldview often gives birth to questions that other worldviews really don't have to wrestle with. So yes, while on one hand we can affirm with Paul that God uses everything to serve his purposes and his glory, we can't always see the lines of causality or trace that particular path. Nevertheless, here are, I think, some helpful questions that can be asked. A very common one. Was there a time in your life when you believed in God? You might be surprised how many people would say yes. Ever wondered about what the purpose of life 
might be. Where, where, where does our sense of uh, moral indignation come from when we see evil in the world? How do we name evil? Presupposing hypothetically if God did exist, what would you like to ask God? Is there any point to suffering? How do we, how do we make sense of this life? And frankly, some worldviews are utterly bankrupt at trying to answer these questions. And I think that's what Tolstoy is getting at uh, in his little work entitled A Confession. I couldn't resist putting it in here. Tolstoy says, well, I said to myself, I know everything that science so much wants me to know, but this path will not lead me to an answer to the question of the meaning of my life. The answer given by this branch of, of knowledge to my question about the meaning of my life was only this. You are a little lump of something randomly stuck together. The lump decomposes. The decomposition, the decomposition of this lump is known as your life. The lump falls apart and thus decomposition ends as do all of your questions. Wow, go home and be encouraged. Um, <laughs> Thus, the clear side of knowledge replies, and if it strictly follows its own principles, there is nothing more to be said. To say that my life is a particle of infinity not only fails to give it any meaning, but destroys all possible meaning. Asking the right questions. And finally, sharing our experiences. I said it briefly before, but the best defense of God is a life that is lived in such a way that it invites questions, which affords us an opportunity to tell our stories. For in many ways, stories, and especially true stories, have a way of engaging people on a level that arguments simply cannot. William James wrote a famous book about 100 years ago entitled The Varieties of Religious Experience. He was certainly no friend to Christianity. He basically said that in studying all these people who had some experience of God, there was no amount of argument or reasoning that could talk them out of what they intuitively experienced. It just couldn't be done. But yet their lives were dramatically different after the fact. The long and short of it is is that stories and experiences are likely to have a far more significant impact than arguments do. And recently, a a theologian by the names of James K.A. Smith has reflected on this reality from a more biblical perspective, reminding us what the church fathers already knew several hundred years ago, that we are formed by what we love. We are formed by what we most love. And without at all doubting the validity of rational reflection, Smith says that we evangelicals often aim too high. We aim for the head instead of the heart. We're hopelessly modern in that regard. And ironically, Smith goes on to say that the designers of the shopping mall have a better understanding of how character formations how character formation happens, then do most Christians. What does the mall do? Well, it creates a palpable vision of the good life. You can't possibly be happy if you do not have a pair of Gap khakis. 
It's the music, it's the environment, it's the display. They don't, they don't put out a, you know, an outline with a three-point argument rationally explaining to you why you need these pants. The mall is training us to love and desire the things that are on display. The mall is aimed at formation by addressing the heart while Christians often focus on information. Affections form character. What defines us is what we love. And if we pause long enough to think about that statement, I think it's very defensible, defensible biblically and theologically. What, what are the two greatest commandments? It's, it's not know God and know your neighbor. It's, it's love God and love your neighbor. Now, to be sure, knowledge is enfolded in love. But you can have knowledge without love. Stories have a way of engaging us on a level that mere arguments can't. And one quick biblical example would be Nathan confronting David over his adultery and homicide. Not a fun task to, you know, to be, to telling a king, be telling a king, um, you're a murderer and adulterer. But that's what Nathan was faced with. So what does he do? (laughs) He tells him a story tells him a story about a rich king who had uh, the cattle on a thousand hills. A visitor comes to visit the king. He doesn't want to sacrifice any of his lambs, so he goes and he takes the lamb of a poor man, the only lamb that this man has, the only lamb that this man loves like a child. He's the king. He can do that. He takes it, kills it for his guest. David, David the king, David the shepherd, is outraged. This man deserves to die. And then Nathan leaves off the narrative and says, puts the knife in and turns it and says, you are that man. And he is cut to the quick. Now, do you think David would have got it if Nathan had just said, you're guilty? Uh, Probably, but not on the level that he got it with this story. Now, admittedly, this is a story of confrontation, but stories of God's goodness and deliverance in our lives can be every bit as powerful. Our stories don't need to be even fantastic. In fact, just a few, a few words aptly spoken can be every bit as powerful, which brings us back to Michelle and the Satanist. A little bit later, Joe, the Satanist, and Michelle, a new convert to the Christian faith, happened to be at the the coffee shop at the same time, and they both went out back for a smoke. Uh, Neil Cole, the pastor, was observing this scenario, and he confessed that he was a little bit worried. New Christian, seasoned atheist, not a good combination. He was genuinely concerned that her fragile faith could break with just the right sentence. So he says, later I pulled her aside to see how she was doing. I noticed you were talking with Joe. He's a handful. Are you okay? She replied, oh yeah, I'm fine. He just kept on talking and talking and I kept on listening and listening. And finally at one point he stopped to take a breath and I jumped in and said, Joe, you're too smart for me. I can't keep up with you. But then she paused and added, 
I sense that you are lonely. And she paused some more to let those words settle in and went on to say, I was lonely too. And for many years, I would go to bed at night and wonder if anyone in the whole universe would ever care or even notice if I woke up the next day. Then I met Jesus, and I'm not so lonely anymore because I know that he loves me and he cares about what is going on in my life. And Cole writes, for the first time, Joe was silent. Short time later, Cole goes on and says that he ran into Joe the Satanist again, who informed him that he was going to change his religion. He said, I'm either going to be a Christian or a Buddhist. (laughs) Now, Cole recalls that he had the good sense not to ask him why in the world he would want to become a Buddhist and then listen to Joe give a defense of Buddhism. So he took the other route and said, well, why would you want to become a Christian? Joe said, the thing that attracts me to Christianity more than any other religion is this concept of grace. And Joe's eyes watered up as he preached the gospel to this pastor. And he hasn't yet made a decision for Christ but it's quite clear that Michelle's love and brief, rather unsensational biography and a few aptly spoken words accomplish far more than a thousand nights of apologetic seminars or debates or discussions ever could. But you see, Michelle was willing to have a cigarette with an atheist. I'm not asking that you go out and smoke. Um, <laughs> But there may be people in your lives closer than you recognize who are in precisely Joe's position. Does God exist? (laughs) Well, perhaps we'd be better off if our lives demonstrated that reality before we embark on defending God's existence through our arguments. And may God grant us the faith and the hope and the love to live the kind of life that invites those kinds of 